The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 4. This week, we are answering the second question in our Curious series, that being, if God is good, why is there so much suffering in the world? Now, this question came in in various forms. Uh, It was not asked only once. Um, Some of the forms it came in included a fairly common paradox uh, and, and this paradox was recently put forth by Lex Luthor in the Batman versus Superman movie, if you saw that. Here's what he said, as if he was the first one to ever think of it. If God is good, he cannot be all-powerful. And if God is all-powerful, he cannot be all-good. And so sometimes this question comes forth in that statement. The reason given for that is that evil and suffering would not exist if God were both all-good and all-powerful. This idea is often given as evidence that there is no God. For some, it is simply evidence that the God of the Bible specifically does not exist. Or, if he does exist, that he's not worthy to be worshipped. Now, there have been volumes upon volumes written on this subject, and so we will not be able to have an exhaustive study of all that could be said on it today. However, I do want to attempt to press past some of the canned or somewhat cliche answers that are offered sometimes for this question. Some of those answers are accurate, but can be insufficient for a thinking person. I'm going to ask you guys to dig in and think with me today, and my hope is that by the help of the Holy Spirit, we can be more thoughtful and helpful missionaries after our time in the Word together. I also want to say that this question in all its forms really is a reasonable one, and we must not consider it a bad thing for people to ask it. Now, to be sure, sometimes this question is born of an attempt to escape the implications of there being an all-powerful God that made everything. Sure, that's sometimes the case, but on the other end of the spectrum, sometimes this question comes out of such deep pain and anguish because of the suffering of life that there's an inability for someone to reconcile what they see the scriptures describe as a a powerful, loving God and the pain that they have walked through. And so we don't want to be inconsiderate of that. Peter and John didn't just do a happy dance when they heard about the empty tomb. They ran to it. They examined the evidence they found there, and they came to the conclusion that Jesus had indeed risen from the dead. There are absolutely points where faith is required to believe. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. We know that. But there are absolutely points that we can use the minds God gave us to think through things as well. And so we'll have a mix of that today. Okay, we're in Genesis 2, and we're starting in verse 4 together. Okay? This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils. His nostrils, I don't know what nostrils are. 
breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. The bdellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. That last verse is important. Also, I want you to just put a mental bookmark Genesis 2.15, it's going to come up later. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Genesis 2.15, are we, are we pre-curse or are we post-curse? Right? Has, has sin happened yet? Any of the bad stuff happened yet? No. We are, we are before the fall of man. It says the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. I think that's interesting because I think most of us have this idea of of, of heaven and of perfection as kind of like most people imagine retirement. Like there's just a complete lack of anything to do. We can kind of be on a lazy river all day and never have to do anything. I think this is interesting because we are talking, we, we are in God's perfect design at this point and he's giving the man a job, something to do. I think that speaks to how God created us and how it is actually we find the deepest joy. Uh, I'm not sure perpetual ease, comfort, and lack of effort uh, is as good for us as sometimes we think it is. Bookmark that. We'll come back to it later. We're going to jump now to chapter 3, starting in verse 1. We're going to read seven verses, okay? So uh, right there, chapter 3, verse 1, here we go. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Uh, the rest of the chapter, verses 8 uh, down through 24, lays out um, the fact that the caution God gave at the beginning absolutely was true, lays out uh, the effects of this sin and disobedience, uh, commonly known as the curse. So, the short answer to why there is suffering in the world is that there is evil in the world. And there is evil in the world because we chose to disobey God. God gave us the option to either trust and obey Him or disregard and disobey Him. He warned our first parents that the consequences of disobedience would be cataclysmic. And we are living through the reality of those consequences. 
There is evil and suffering in the world because of sin and its effects. Now, we are going to press deeper into this because there are some questions that come out of this answer. For example, if God is all-knowing and exists outside of time, then he knew that Adam and Eve would sin. And so why did he put the tree there to begin with? That's a good question. And we're going to work on it after a short side trail. Since we are in Genesis, and the answer to this is tied in with our subject today, somebody during the course of the Curious Campaign and the Gathering of Questions asked about Cain's wife. Okay, So she is mentioned in Genesis 4. The the question goes like this. Uh, Genesis 4, Cain is said to leave and uh, after he kills his brother Abel, he, he leaves out of God's presence, goes to the land of Nod towards the east, and it says that he has relations with his wife and has a son named Enoch, okay? The Bible doesn't give us any more details, but this begs a question, right? If Adam and Eve were our first parents, their sons were Cain and Abel, where did Cain pick this wife up at, right? Um, we didn't have Christian mingle yet, and, you know, uh, not even eHarmony. And so, um, how, did, how did he pick this chick up? So, and, and, and where did she come from? Who was she? So, um, and, and really what it is, it, oftentimes it's sometimes brought as kind of a dis- discrediting to the scriptures and saying, well, then it would have had to have been a close family member. And, and people see that then as, you know, discrediting the story. Well, here's the reality. Cain's wife did indeed have to be either his sister or his niece, okay? Now, here's the question you have to ask yourself. I know that's gross, okay? So everyone just shake that off, all right? But you have to ask yourself, when is it that God prohibited incest and why? See, for us today, the idea of incest, close family members uh, marrying and or bearing children together has really heavy stigma on it, as it should, where does that come from? Well, it comes from thousands of years of that being the tradition. When did that happen? When, when did God lay down this edict that that should not happen? Well, that didn't come until Leviticus 18 in the time of Moses, right? We also know that Abraham married his half-sister Sarah. Remember that one? So all the way up to the time of Moses, and if you think about it even further, Noah and his family got off the boat, so there was going to be some close proximity as far as repopulating the earth in that case as well. So that leads us to a question. Why is it that God did not prohibit incest until Leviticus 18 in the time of Moses? Why was it okay in those first generations? All right. The Bible doesn't give us that answer. However, some of what we understand about science and the human body, genetics, uh, and how all of that works does give us a possibility for why it is God did not give the prohibition against incest until later down kind of the generational line. The reason why people of close familial proximity should not marry and have children is because when, when we have kids, there's genetic copies made from the mother and the father, right? And so part of what has happened throughout the course of time and after the effects of the curse have kind of passed down through generations is there's mistakes made in those copies, And so the problem is when close family members come together and have children, there's a very high probability of them having the same genetic mistakes copied and then those overlapping. And that's where you have things like birth defects and other issues that come out of that. So why was that not so much of an issue at the beginning? Well, 
it, it, it stands to reason that if Adam and Eve were genetically perfect, there were no mutations, there were no issues yet, that hadn't, the, the genetic copying hadn't gone far enough down yet where we have this abundance of issues within the human genetic code, then it wasn't an issue yet uh, where it would start to cause issues like birth defects and, and things of that nature. And so we don't see God put that prohibition in place until it was going to be harmful for people. So that is maybe more than they were asking, but not only am I telling you that Cain's wife would have been either his sister or his niece, but also some of the reason why that's not quite as grody as it seems <laughs> uh, and wasn't in that time. Okay? Everyone with me on that? All right. Uh, it does matter. There's been people that have tried to discredit the Bible on that very simple premise right there before, um, you know, bringing up Cain's wife. And so th there is logical reasons why that wasn't as big of a deal as it seems, okay? Now, back to why, if God knew that Adam and Eve would sin, did he put the tree there to begin with? This is deep, and so I'm asking you to think. First, I believe we must distinguish between God foreknowing and God causing. For some, this is difficult, and so I want to try to make the distinction clear. I have heard people say, what's the difference? If God knew that they would eat of the tree and still put it there, then he caused them to sin. I, I don't believe that's true. And, and I'm going to now give you an analogy to try to help us think through it. Remember, analogies always break down. They are imperfect, but just think with me through this, okay? Imagine that you were in a hot air balloon, and you're drifting about on a beautiful day. And you look down and you saw a car parked on some train tracks. You can also see down the tracks because of your high vantage point, and around the corner, there's a train coming. The train conductor is distracted on his cell phone, and the person in the car has parked there intentionally because they lost their job, and they no longer want to live. You, from your high vantage point, watch in horror as the train comes around the corner and smashes into that car. Here's my question. Did you cause this tragedy? Is the, is the fact that you knew before the car or the train knew that a collision was imminent, is that fact that you knew before it happened the same as you parking the car on the tracks or operating the train while distracted? It's not the same. Nor is God's foreknowledge of events the same as him causing those events. You could say, well, God could move the car, though. I couldn't do that from the hot air balloon. Well, I would say, yes, that's true, but that brings us now back to the issue at hand, which is the issue of free will. The real issue in the garden is not the tree, but what it represents. We know that God made man in his image as the pinnacle of his creations and for the special purpose of being in relationship with him and having dominion over the earth. For many people, the problem is not the tree, but the fact that God chose to create us with the ability to choose. Some have asked this question, why would he do this? Wouldn't it have been better for him to make us without the option to disobey him? Then we would never have sinned at all, and all would be well. 1 John 4 tells us twice that God is love. 
and we see that we were made in his image and likeness, God did not need someone to love. He had love and relationship within the Trinitarian Godhead of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit throughout all of time. Yet we see he must have desired us to be the object of his affection or he wouldn't have made us. The question we need to seriously ask ourselves is this. Is real love possible without choice? Is love not an outworking of the will? Let me ask you this way. If I were to build a little puppet like Pinocchio that only moved or spoke when I manipulated its strings, could I love that puppet the way I love my children? More importantly, could that puppet love me? If it had no choice. Friends, I have to believe if the end goal of a loving relationship between us and God, that was his end goal, could have been accomplished without the pain of sin and evil and suffering, then God would have done it that way. If you struggle to believe that premise, I would ask you to think through this with me. Is it not true that nobody has suffered more than God as a result of sin and evil? Nobody has suffered more than God as a result of sin and evil. Try to imagine the pain of being all-knowing and all-loving. To love perfectly and yet be aware of every single painful result of sin in an imperfect world. Think of how hard that would be. Friends, God's foreknowledge of sin and the suffering it would bring is not evidence against his goodness. It is some of the strongest evidence for it. He knew all he would suffer so that he could have us. And the most painful of it all, being at the cross. There are stories of Christian martyrs dying in ways just as physically painful as crucifixion, being burned at the stake while singing hymns, or declaring to the crowd standing around and watching them that they should stay faithful to God to the end as the flames were peeling the skin off their bodies. They're speaking calmly to those around and saying, stay faithful to Jesus. Many of them singing hymns as the smoke filled their lungs. Why is it then that Jesus is overcome with anxiety leading up to the cross? And on the cross, he calls out in agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is it that some of his followers have been able to face death with seeming more poise than Jesus himself? It's because it was not the torture or the slow and painful physical death that was the worst of what Jesus experienced on the cross. It was separation from God the Father. It was the separation we deserved, but he endured. I tried to think of a way to make this make more sense because I think it's hard to even grasp. You, you understand the, the absolute excruciating 
suffering that had to have been the, the physical part of the crucifixion. It's hard to imagine anything in that moment emotionally or, or spiritually being more difficult than that. Just your, everything in your body screaming at you. I mean, nails driven through the most sensitive nerve centers on your body. You're asphyxiating, losing blood. It, it, it sounds incredibly terrible. But, so I tried to think of, of an example, and, and uh, this, this came to my mind. Uh, you've, you've probably heard me talk about her before, um, if, if you've been around at all. Uh, my my great-grandma... Her name is Roberta Marquis, and uh, her and my granddad pronounced it Marquis because they didn't like the French, and uh, so it is the same last name as mine, but, um, you know, that was whatever. I don't know. Uh, Give them a pass. So, anyways, um, my great-granddad, his name was Marnie, he died about four years ago of cancer, and uh, him and my grandmother were married... 62 or 63 years. She's 86 now. And uh, I talked to her on the phone just recently, and um, she's never one to complain. Most of the time when I get on the phone with her, all all she wants to talk about, Vincent, the Lord's been so good to me. She calls me Vincent. She's one of the few people who does that. And uh, she can do whatever she wants. So... um, Vincent, the Lord's been so good to me, and all I take is a calcium pill, and I'm healthy, and I, he's, you know, so she just, most of the time is, that's, that's what she's talking about, and just kind of giving me the details of her week, simple things, and, but recently I could, I could really perceive in her voice some struggle, and so I pressed her a little bit, and she said, Vincent, it's just, it's, it's real hard, because I'm having to learn how to live again, I'm having to learn how to live my life without Marnie. We were married for 63 years. I don't, it's been four years since he died and I still sometimes don't know what to do. And so, uh, of course, I prayed with her and, you know, tried to speak words of encouragement to her, but I think in trying to understand the pain that Jesus endured and being separated from the Father. You know, Grandma and Grandpa were married for 63 years. That's a long time. But that's still just an imperfect human relationship. Jesus and the Father, since eternity past, had enjoyed complete and perfect love and affection and connection. And at the cross, that connection was severed. Jesus endured the pain of separation that all of us deserved. And he had to endure that. And I know, I know that part of, Grandma won't come out and say it because she's a good faith lady and wouldn't want somebody to worry, but part of what she was telling me, part of what she's saying in that, is she really, a lot of times I think, is sitting there wishing she could be done with her race. It would be really worth it to her to have that connection restored. It's a lot of pain and it's a lot of struggle. It's very difficult for her. But that pales in comparison. As much as I can imagine that hurting her and how difficult that is for her, it pales in comparison to the separation Jesus felt on the cross. And God, before he made us, 
knew that that pain was going to be required to have us. And so we need to understand that, yes, God did know Adam and Eve would sin. He did know that we were going to fall. He did know all of the pain and the difficulty, the struggle and the suffering that was going to be a result of sin throughout all of time. He did know. And he knew that he was going to suffer through all of that with us. And the pinnacle of his suffering because of our sin was going to be the separation he was going to feel between father and son at the cross. And yet, he still saw fit to make us. And yet, he still saw fit to go through it. And so the fact that he knew is in no way a condemning fact that should lead us to some understanding that he's not all-powerful or not all-good. It should show us the incredible beauty and sacrificial nature of love. Not only was he willing to go through what he went through on the cross, but he was willing to make us and to go through all of that. And he knew ahead of time. And that didn't stop him. That's how much he wanted us. That's how much he loves us. That's how much the end goal of us and him forever is worth it. How then do we ever take that and cause it to then be a question of his character? Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Jesus is a high priest who can empathize with our weakness. He understands. That's what we have to, that's what we have to see in this, friends. The fact that there is suffering and pain in this world is a result of evil. This is not something that God just put upon us. This is not just a, a punishment that he's giving us, and then once we pay enough of that punishment, well, then he'll, then he'll send Jesus, and, and all of it will be fixed. That's, that's not the deal. From the beginning, when, when, those, when that consequence was being laid out, as much as God was saying to them, okay, now, he, to the... To, to the serpent, to the man, to the woman. Here's the consequences. As much as he was declaring to them, okay, this is what it's going to cost because of your disobedience. As much as that, he, he was also standing there with them, knowing that he was going to bear the pain of those consequences. Because there is nothing that has hurt your heart that has not hurt God's heart. Think about that. The pain and the suffering that any of you have walked through as a result of sin, whether it's sin in your own life, sin committed that you've done, or sin that's been committed against you, all of the pain, all of the tears, all of the struggles, all of the agony that is a result of sin, the God of the universe who loves you perfectly has experienced that and has felt it and has been there in it with you. And so we cannot take our suffering, we cannot take our struggle and throw it at him as an accusation. Because he's gone through it with us. He suffered with us. He's walked with us. He's not a high priest who cannot understand our struggles. He's been through all we've been through. He's paid a much higher price than any of us possibly could individually. Another reason that we cannot assume that God is not good because suffering exists is that many times, struggle and difficulty is for our good. I want to call your attention back to Genesis 2.15. Remember, I asked you to put a mental note there. God put Adam in the garden. Here's what Genesis 2.15 says. God put Adam in the garden to cultivate it and keep it. Now, this was before sin. This was before the fall. So what was, 
See, I think a lot of times what we imagine was happening in the garden, or even sometimes what we imagine is going to happen when uh, uh, sin is vanquished and all of our enemies have been made Jesus' footstool, and we are celebrating the goodness and the perfection and the love and the long-suffering and the mercy of God for all eternity, and we are able to peer upon his unveiled face forever. I think a lot of times what we imagine that's going to look like is just this unending bliss. We're never going to have to exert any effort or do anything. And, and guys, I'm just not sure, based on this and many other things I see in the scriptures, that our idea of just uninhibited comfort and no exertion whatsoever on our part um, is actually the best thing for us. Adam had a job in the garden. He was to cultivate and keep it. And, and what does that mean? Well, part of the deal, I think, is that God made us in his image. And somebody asked me recently about, you know, why is it that, why is it that God would make a universe so vast if, like, all we need is this little blue marble here to kind of be the whole point, you know, right? Like, Everything that's kind of going on that matters seems to be going on right here, and yet we've got a universe so vast we can't see the end of it, right? We've got billions and billions and billions of stars. We've got expanses that, I mean, math is stretched to even try to calculate the distance. And, well, what's, what's the deal with that? And uh, as, as we converse through it, we, we came to conclusions. One is that to some degree, the beauty of the cosmos declares the power of God. Just think about it, right? I mean, just, just look around our little blue marble. I mean, just the, the, the variety of biological life, the fact that this, this planet is, is, it seems purpose-built to support life. I mean, the fact that we have one sun and the fact that we're the distance we are from it, right? 93 million miles, a little, little more, uh, a little farther away we freeze, a little closer we burn. The fact that we have one moon that has enough size to have gravitational effect upon our tides. If it didn't, the oceans would be a cesspool. There would be no life on this planet. The fact that we have the gas mixture on this planet that we do that allows us to breathe and the fact that we have the, the water cycle that we do, that there's as much fresh water on this planet as there is and on and on and on and on you go. The fact that we're in a Milky Way uh, galaxy, it's, it's, that we're in this galaxy, that it's a spiral galaxy, that it's not an irregular galaxy, the fact that it's got some normative gravitational pull, the fact that we are where we're at in the galaxy, that we're not closer to the center where there's a lot more stuff flying in all the time. We haven't just been straight destroyed yet. It's all these things. You begin to understand the specific way that this thing has been set up. You look at it, it declares the grandeur and the, the expertise and the absolute genius of the God that designed it. It's beautiful. And if it, if it wasn't just for that, is it, is it not, does it not speak something to how much we are like God in this? Don't, don't you ever just enjoy creating something? Don't you... Those of you that are more artistic, right? So, so for me, creating something is like um, getting the ductwork right on a furnace, right? Like I built it and it's right and it works. I just created something. Sweet. Some of you can paint and like do stuff that's pretty. So for me, it's like building something, creating something, making something work right. I can stand back from that. Have you ever felt just the satisfaction from that? You ever, you ever made something with your hands? You ever put put your heart and soul into creating something and it, and it worked or it, it was beautiful or it did what it was intended to do. And there's what that is, that's part of the image of God on us. That's, we, 
And, and so I believe some of why he didn't just make this little blue marble that we needed was because God is creative. And I, I believe he enjoyed creating all that he created. And so some of it is just an expression of, of who he is. And, and some of that comes through as we see how we are. We see some of his image in the fact that we are creative beings. The fact that we take joy in that process. Whether it's music or art or woodworking or, 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 or whatever it is, there's, there's, there's all these ways that humans express themselves. Um, you know, and and it's, it's, it's almost across the board. We, there's, there's a satisfaction in, in making. And I believe that's part of the fingerprint, the imprint of the image of God upon us. I think God enjoyed creating the universe. And it declares his grandeur. It declares his power. It's a big universe. It's a big God. Amen. God put Adam in the garden to cultivate it and keep it. So what, what are we talking about? One, <laughs> I, <laughs> I get excited sometimes. and whew, bit, of, bit of a trail there. Um, we're talking about the reason, we're talking about the fact that we should not assume God is not good because suffering exists because sometimes struggle is for our good. And so I'm simply, so the, my first premise is based on Genesis 2, us working and having to exert energy and effort, I, 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 think, I think many of us think of heaven as like an all-inclusive resort. Like once we finally get there, you know, angels will just be, you know, bringing us non-alcoholic for sure, my ties or whatever, you know, and we're just going to be kicked back doing our thing um, forever. Like, it's, it's vacation for eternity. You know, the Bible says less about what eternity is going to be like than we think, but ultimately what, this, what ends up happening, man, is, is yes, for, for a time we're in heaven, but then heaven comes back to earth, right? And there's a new city here, and ultimately I think it's going to look a lot more like what was going on in the garden than, than we think. And there's going to be, I believe, civilization, and we're going to do something <laughs> um, underneath the, the glorious unveiled face of God, and uh, it's going to be beautiful. And so um, work and struggle and strain, even from that perspective, is, is not a bad thing for us. And so I'm, I'm trying to get you to see that um, maybe, maybe, maybe retirement isn't as cool as we think it is. Anyways, um, here, here's a couple other scriptures I want to read you. Uh, I didn't give them these. I just want you to listen to this, Okay. Um, don't, don't try to read it. Just, just listen. I'm talking about why sometimes struggle is for our good. This is Romans 5, starting in verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this... But we also exalt in our tribulations. Pause. Okay? Most of us don't use the word exalt in day-to-day -day language. That's like rejoice, get happy about, right? So here, hold on. This is the scriptures. What did it say, first of all? We, we exalt or we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, right? All of us can kind of like, yes, the hope of the glory of God. That sounds good. Yeah, I can rejoice in that. Hold on. But verse 3 starts to get wild. And not only this but we also exult in our tribulations. Uh-oh. That's getting weird. Right? So what are we saying here? We're saying that Christians, hold on. 
can rejoice in their tribulations. Why is that? Here's why. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Come on, friends. Yes, we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Yes and amen. But also because of Christ. Also because we know how this thing ends. Also because we know he's faithful. Also because we know he is the rock upon which we can build a life that will be not shaken when storms come. We can rejoice in tribulation. We can rejoice when suffering comes and knocks upon our door. We can rejoice, not because we think we're tough enough to handle it, not because we think we got uh, enough resources in reserve to make it through, but because of God and his perfect character and his promises to take us from that struggle to bring with, to bring because of that struggle perseverance, come on, that develops character, and then that ends up in hope. And friends, that's what our testimony is about. You go through that process with Jesus enough times where trouble comes and you persevere by the grace of God and the power of his spirit. You come through that thing. You persevere by his help. You end up with character that is galvanized. Your backbone starts to stiffen. You're able to stand in the midst of difficulty. And what you have on the other end of that process, when you've walked with Christ through difficulty, you have a hope. I'm not talking about Disneyland hope. I'm not talking about hope because the princess always gets the prince. I'm talking about hope that is because you have actually walked through struggle and seen the God of the universe be faithful time and again. This is hope that does not disappoint. Ever. And, and how did you get the opportunity to persevere that developed the character that then gave you the hope? How did that come? What did you need first, friend? Tribulation. Struggle. Difficulty. Why do we always assume instantly that either I'm sinning, God's mad at me, the devil's on the roar? Why is it, why is it always that when there's, some, when there's something we got to exert some faith into, something we need to persevere through by God's grace, why, why, why do we jump to always struggle equals bad? Let me read you another scripture. This is Romans 8, starting in verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Guys, I think Romans 8.28 is very easy for us to quote to our friends that are struggling with something. But I think it's very difficult for us to cling to and really believe when it's our time to walk through tribulation or struggle and to persevere by God's grace and have character built and end up with hope. I'm always asking God to, to run me into people on purpose. And you, you believe this if you want to or not. This week, what day was it? This would have been... Wednesday, Wednesday of this week, okay? Much, much of this was already laid out. I knew where I was headed. Um, and 
this is where we were going in the scriptures together. This week, uh, I'm working on gas lines in a house, and I needed to have the meter turned on. And so I call, and they send out a subcontractor. His name's Tom. He's a subcontractor for Duke Energy. He comes out, and, uh, you know, he's doing his thing. He's got a pressure test and stuff, and so we've got some time in this dingy basement. And so, you know, I'm, I got him trapped, so start talking. And uh, so I'm letting him tell me his story, and, and he starts to tell me that he's a cancer survivor. He's 31. At 26 years old, uh, with a four-year-old daughter, he contracted a rare cancer, a, a form of leukemia that normally only children get, and uh, did, the st- did all of the standard procedures that they had. They tried chemo. They tried all the stuff. It was, it was a mass in his chest, and they finally ended up telling him, um, go home. We'll make you comfortable. Go home and expire. Those are the words he used that they told him. And uh, he said, man, I had a four-year-old daughter. So I'm not, I wasn't going to do it. And so he told him he had already been researching, and apparently there was a, a, a cancer uh, research facility in Texas that had an experimental new uh, therapy. And so he told them, I'm not going to go home and die. I'm just going to go to Texas. I'm going to let them use this experimental drug on me. I'm not just going to give up. And um, he, because he was 26, I guess they'll take people in, at, at Children's Hospital up until 27, so he just barely made the cutoff. And this was the, that was the best option for him because it was a, a cancer that they'd only ever really seen in kids. It was very, very rare for an adult to get it. And so Children's was said, well, hold on. I mean, if you're going to do that, they called down to Texas, got them to ship the drug up. They gave it to him. And completely eradicated the cancer with that drug. And uh, he said, you know what? As I was going through that, I kept asking, why me? Like all, I, all I've done, I've worked hard, tried to provide for my family. I don't party. I don't do all this or that. He's like, you know, why? I kept, I kept asking, why me? Why, why did I go through this? And he, uh, he said, all said and done, he said that, that uh, most of the time that cancer he had killed anybody that got it. It was, it was not, it was very, very low survival rate. And he said now Children's Hospital has begun to use that treatment on a bunch of kids that had the same exact leukemia he had, and the survival rate has gone through the roof. And he said, you know what? It's possible that God knew I would refuse to go home and die, that they would experiment this on me, that it would heal the cancer, and now there's a bunch of kids that would have died otherwise that now aren't. I said, dude, that's really cool, man. I said, Tom, I like you. <laughs> and then uh, we, were, we were walking out, and I had pretty much just let him tell me his story, and you know, I asked some questions, but I was really just letting him talk, and then we hadn't got to this yet, and so, you know, you know me, he's walking towards the truck, I said, well, dude, that's incredible, I'm, I'm, I said, I'm, I will not forget this story, and I'm honored to meet you, man, I said, it's a beautiful perspective, I said, but I have to ask, man, where are you at with Jesus, what, what do you think about the Lord, man, and he, he stopped, and he said, you know what, he said, I had a coworker that, uh, so he's a Catholic fella, 
He said he works all the time. He gives most of his money away uh, to different charities and stuff. And he said he came in uh, when I was going through that treatment. He said he prayed for me. And he said from that day forward, I got better every single day. He said, you know what? I wasn't raised in church and had no background whatsoever with God. He said, after that, I'm a believer. He said, I go to church every week, read my Bible all the time. He said, I believe God helped me. And I'm like, dude, I really like you, Tom. <laughs> and uh, I think that's just one example of we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I know for some of you, that's, that's a beautiful story to hear, but it also hurts because maybe you have a story where it didn't go that way. There wasn't a new test drug. There wasn't some miracle that came through. The thing you were hoping for didn't happen. The person didn't make it. And you might say to me, you know what? That's great. But for every story like that, with a silver lining, there's 10 more that don't have one. And I would ask you, friend, to just consider the possibility that that's where faith comes in. Because I need to ask you to just think about this. If there's a God big enough to create all that exists and to work his redemptive purposes through all of history, is he not big enough to work good out of suffering that we might be unaware of? It was very obvious in Tom's story how it is God used that struggle and that painful experience ultimately for good. It wasn't hard to figure out, but sometimes it's not as obvious. But friends, here's what I'm saying to you. Romans 8 is still there. Romans 8.28 is still standing in declaration as God's perfect word saying, God will work all things to the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so I'm asking you, if you're in the midst of something and you're broken, or you've gone through difficulty and struggle and pain and results of the fact that there is evil and sin in this world, I'm asking you that if you don't see if you can't directly understand how it is that God is working good somehow, then I'm saying to you, can you trust by faith that he is? We may not always see it. It's a beautiful grace when we can. Sometimes we don't see it because we don't know how to look. Sometimes we don't see it just because it's not within our view. But there's so many things. There's so many places, there's so many connections, there's so much going on as God, the grand weaver, brings all things to this end result that he's been working for from the beginning, which is us and him forever. Can you trust him? I've seen enough times where the evidence of Romans 8.28 being true, the, the clear picture of how this devastating thing that there was no way when you were looking at it in the middle of it that it could be seen as, as anything good possibly ever coming from it. I have seen so many times in my own life and the life of others, including Tom that I just met this week, the gas line guy, 
right? I've seen, I've seen it too many times where in, in unbelievable, miraculous ways, God uses difficulty, struggle, and pain ultimately for good. I've seen it enough times. I, I've been able to make the connection enough times that I believe it's reasonable to trust that when I can't see it, that's still happening. Amen. Many have leveled the accusation that they won't believe in a God that allows children to die when all they need is rain. I've heard it said many times. There's people starving to death because of crop issues. There's people dying because they just don't have water. And, and I've heard many people say they will not believe in a God that allows children to die when all they needed was some rain. The truth is, there are very few situations where rain alone would solve a clean water problem. Without infrastructure to collect and safely store clean water, rain is of little help. Here's the real and uncomfortable truth. $10 billion spent efficiently and intelligently would provide safe drinking water to the world. That's the same amount of money that we spend on ice cream in this country per year. The truth is, there are those who choose to shake their fist at God or question his goodness because of suffering in the world that he has already given us both the reason and the resources to solve. The reason, you ask? He has loved us magnificently by grace. And he has called us in light of that love to love each other sacrificially. That's the reason. The resources? If the two billion or so people who claim to be Christians in the world each gave five bucks, we could solve the clean water problem. Now, I anticipate your pushback. There's a lot of super poor Christians that couldn't give five bucks. Okay. How about half of us give ten? Well, I don't know if a billion Christians could give ten dollars. Okay, how about a quarter of us give twenty? We can keep doing math. That's about as far as I can go without a calculator. My point is, friends, my point is, it makes no sense whatsoever to blame God for suffering that he has given us both the reason and the resources to answer. Can't do that. We can't let people do that. I don't care if it's non-Christians or whoever. You, you can't, you can't, <laughs> you know, <laughs> You can't sit there sipping your Fiji water in your ivory tower and declaring that God is somehow unloving when he is command. He sent Christ with a message, didn't he? Did Christ say some stuff about this? Like, hey, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Did he tell parables like the Good Samaritan? Has he, has he not given us enough reason to care about meeting these needs? And he's surely given us the resources. And so let us not ever stand in doubt of his goodness. He has provided what is needed to meet much of the suffering that we see. The question is, do we have the fortitude to do it? Will we answer the call? Will we be obedient? That's not on him, friends. That's on us. As humans generally... <laughs> But as Christians in particular, 
There's something I want to address um, <clears throat> specifically. It, it, it came as a separate question, but, but I, I believe it fits squarely into this subject. Somebody wrote in uh, as a part of this series a question, and, and they, they asked this. They said, as a Christian woman who I, I delight myself in the Lord, and yet I find myself infertile, unable to have children, why is it? that the desire of my heart's not being met. And the first thing I want to say to you is, um, I, I in no way assume that I'm going to be able to say anything that's just going to make all the pain go away, and, and you don't need to feel convicted because that hurts. That hurts. I have walked through that suffering with many families, and I have gone through that struggle and prayed with people as they desperately seek Jesus in regards to that issue. It's difficult, and it hurts. And if anybody treats you like it's not okay that that hurts, you tell them to shut up. Tell them I said so. Okay? Now, ultimately, why did I, I put this at the end of this because I'm, I'm going to ask you if that's you. And, and, I, and I, I think one person was brave enough to ask it. There's many people that have struggled with it or know people who have. And so the second thing I want to say to you is I put this at the end of this because I'm going to humbly ask you to please consider all that I've said thus far in light of that question. Starting with the fact that the reason why just biologically infertility is such an issue um, in our day and age, is because this world is not as it should be. Sin has ravaged this planet. One day, all of that will be set right. We are not there yet. And so we will struggle and we will strain against the effects of sin. And so the fact that this incredibly painful specific struggle is one of the ways that you are experiencing that uh, I am sorry, and my heart goes out for you, and Jesus also loves you and cares about it. Uh, and he hurts about it too. There's a couple other things I want to say about that, though. First, when we pray and ask God for things, there's three potential answers. Yes, no, and later. And what I'm going to ask you to please Consider, and please try to believe, even in the midst of your struggle and your pain regarding this, is the overall premise of what I'm trying to say, and that's that the fact that whether it's the specific suffering you're going through or the fact that we see suffering and evil at large, that that does not in any way speak to God's goodness. God is good, and God does love you, and God does see exactly where you're at. And I want you to know that I, I, I will turn this iPad over to anybody that wants to see it, and you can check when these notes were saved. And so you can see that this note to discuss this issue was locked into this set of uh, notes before I got here today, okay? I finalized it earlier today. So this question was in here, and I want you to know that when I got here today, that somebody who has been struggling with fertility issues, called out to me 
and pulled me off to the side, and we had a discussion for about 10 minutes. And here's what they said. They said, uh, we just wanted to ask you to pray for us, and we want to let you know we're going to be having a baby. Uh, it's been a long struggle, but here's some things we learned through it. We know that part of what was going on is that we had made an idol out of being parents, and that God has graciously delayed answering this prayer for us until we got to the point where it was not going to be us getting an idol that was going to be in front of Jesus. And that was really hard to go through. But we see that now, and we understand that that's exactly what God was doing. And it's kind of funny that when we came to that realization, and we repented of that, and we got to the point where when people were announcing they were pregnant, there was parts during this journey where it was really hard for us to be happy for them. But we got to the point when Jesus dealt with us about this that we started hearing announcements of people being pregnant and, and serious, real rejoicing came up in our heart for them. We were really happy. We were able to be really happy for them. And then you know what happened? Jesus answered our prayer. We're pregnant. I'm not saying if somebody's struggling with fertility issues, that that is always a factor. All I'm saying, friends, is that I had that conversation today. Sometimes it is. Sometimes God will graciously delay answering your prayer because he's got to do some stuff in your heart so that you'll be ready to actually receive that blessing in a way that won't be harmful to you. So sometimes God does it that way. Sometimes he delays and then answers prayer. Sometimes the answer is no. And that can be exceedingly painful in this particular situation, but I want to just submit a couple other ideas to you um, under this umbrella of God's goodness and the fact that he cares about it. First, as somebody that was adopted out of a situation that I may not have made it had I not been, um, sometimes God able God is able to take the struggle of infertility and turn it into good for a child that wouldn't have had good otherwise. And we've seen the beauty of that also in this church family. And so I would humbly submit to you the possibility that God may not give you a baby biologically, but he may ask you to give gospel parenting and a chance at gospel legacy for a child that wouldn't have otherwise had it. That's a possibility. And that's a really beautiful possibility. The other deal is, sometimes even in the absence of formal adoption, guys, there is a huge hole and vacuum in the world of gospel mothering. And so even if, I realize this might not be what you want to hear, but I'm just, I'm just asking you to see the possibilities of how God could be working good in the midst of your struggle. And I'm asking you to believe he is good. And I'm asking you to believe that sometimes our struggle isn't just about, it's not just about building character for us. It's not just about our personal journey, but it's about how it's going to affect so many others. There's a whole, I've told you many times, there are women in this church that were not there when I was born, but they are mothers to me, no less. They pray for me. They stand with me. They do all the things that a mom would do. And I, I am so thankful for that. They are gospel mamas. And I'm just saying to you that if, if you're in a situation where you're struggling with fertility, um, it could be that God is asking you to open your heart wide to the possibility of being a gospel mama to somebody that doesn't have that kind of love. Because a mama's love is real important. God made it that way on purpose. And so, 
I'm just saying to you that um, it is it is not necessarily that um, it's not necessarily a sin. It's not necessarily even just an effect of of the curse, though that's in there. Ultimately, there's a lot of different things that could be happening. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's going to be you submitting all of your life and all of your desires and all of your wants to God's perfect sovereign plan. And part of that verse, when we delight ourselves in the Lord and he gives us the desires of our heart, I'm just going to ask you, if you're in that spot and you're struggling and you're hurting because of infertility today, I'm going to ask you, please don't give up. And please keep delighting yourself in the Lord because the beauty of what happens is that by the Holy Spirit, as you delight yourself in the Lord more and more, you see, it's, it's not so much that you have a list of desires and as you delight yourself in the Lord, God starts checking them off and dumping them down to you. Part of what happens is as you delight yourself more and more in the Lord, your desires begin to interweave with his so closely that they almost can't be pulled apart. They become one. Do you see that? So if that's you, I want you to know that I love you and I'm thankful that you asked the question and that God is good and he loves you too. There's a whole lot of stuff that could be happening there, but please trust him. Praise God. May we be a people who are not afraid to think. And may we be a people that do not treat others as if they are sinning because they have questions. May we be a people who trust by faith that God is good, even when we can't see all that he is doing. And may we be a people who understand that we have been given both a reason and the resources to bring help and healing to a world that is suffering because of sin. And may God be glorified in this. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you. We thank you, Lord, that Much of what is required to walk with you is by faith. But I also thank you, God, that you don't require of us that we check our brains at the door, that you gave us our mental faculties, and that what you desire of us is to think and to reason and to come to reasonable conclusions. And Lord, um, though we weren't able to cover the whole spectrum of all that can be said uh, on this subject today, my, my great prayer and my hope is that you have been reflected upon as the good and loving and gracious God that you are. Help us to see, Lord, that the fact that the world is not as it should be, that there is evil and there is sin, and because of that there is suffering, that this is not an indictment upon your character. God, may we understand that the fact that you knew all of this was going to happen and yet you went through it anyways, that You subjected yourself to the most incredible pain possible so that we could exist and so that you could have us, so that you could save us and redeem us and so that you could have this end goal and result of of, of us and you forever, Lord. May we see that um, evil and suffering in the world is, is not evidence that you're not good. It's evidence that you are incredibly good, that you are indescribably good, that you are immeasurably good, that you are beautiful and holy and you're perfect, and your love is incredible, that your mercy is beautiful, that you are long-suffering and patient, and that you are God worthy of worship and adoration. 
Lord, you are good. I pray for every single person that finds themselves now in the midst of difficulty and struggle. God, I ask that these words would not be cold and academic, but that they would see, they would see the beauty of your struggle. They would see the beauty of you, Jesus, as our high priest that is able to empathize and understands our weakness. May they never feel alone. I ask that every single person that may be struggling within the sound of my voice, that they would never be convinced that they are alone. May they understand, Lord God, that you are with them. Just like those boys in the furnace, that you are there in the midst of the fire, the struggle and the difficulty. I thank you, God. You have said that you will not leave us nor forsake us, that you walk with us through difficulty and through struggle, through beauty, through valleys and through mountaintops. You're there. Your faithfulness is incredible. You're perfect and you're holy. You're wonderful. And we're so thankful. Lord God, please, may we live lives that we do not fear struggle. May we live lives that we do not shrink back from difficulty, but may we understand that because of you, because of your strength and your faithfulness, because of your power, that we can see struggle as something we can rejoice over, knowing that you will lead us through by your Holy Spirit, that you will provide for us the help that we can persevere, that character will be built in us, and we come out the other side of that with proven hope, and that hope will not disappoint. Lord, please be glorified in the way that your people suffer. May we suffer well for your glory. And God, may we be people that are quick to join in with others when they suffer. May we not stand afar off. May we not judge harshly. But when people are hurting, God, may we come in and may we lend them our faith. May we lend them our hope. And God, may this be for the good of your people and the glory of your name. Help us, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.